Let's bow together as we come to God's word. O merciful Father, we thank you that you relate to us not as our sins deserve, but as you have chosen through your steadfast love. We thank you, Father, that you have revealed yourself in your word. We come humbly before it, asking that it would shape us and transform us that we might be more like your son. Father, give us the minds to understand what we need to. Give us the hearts to humbly confess the sin that we need to confess. And give us the courage and boldness to obey in the ways that you call us to. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, James chapter two tells us that God's word is like a mirror and As we look into it, we then can evaluate ourselves and how we are in light of God's word. And I don't know about you, but this passage we've been studying on loving our enemies has been a passage that has been a convicting one for me to look at what Christ calls us to, the not surface level kind of love, but the deep uh, action uh, oriented kind of love. And not just towards those who we kind of like, but to those who are actively trying to go against us is incredibly confronting to our sensibilities. We like to hang around people that are nice to us. We like being around those that treat us well, and we tend to gravitate towards those that do the nice things back when we do something nice to them. And yet Jesus calls us to love in a deep way, a way that cuts to the heart of our selfishness, that cuts to the heart of us wanting to stand up for ourselves. Last week, we began to look at these instructions of Jesus telling his disciples how they're to treat their enemies. He calls us to a kind of love that's unnatural, a kind of love that doesn't make sense to the human mind. And yet, this is our calling today in the 21st century. We, too, must love our enemies enemies. And so I invite you to open your personal copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, if you're not there already, as we look, continue to look at Jesus' command to love our enemies. We'll be reading verses 27 through 36. Luke chapter 6, 27 through 36. Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. As we mentioned last week, these enemies that Jesus is speaking of here most readily relates to those who are opposed to Christ's disciples precisely because they are followers of Jesus. 
In other words, these enemies are persecutors, as verse 22 and 23 seem to indicate. But I believe that the principles that are mentioned here relating to these sorts of enemies are, are applicable to all areas of life and thus to all enemies. In other words, we can't so narrowly interpret Christ's words as to mean we need to love those who persecute us, but we can hate those who are enemies in other sorts of ways. No, we need to love all those who are opposed to us. And so Jesus here teaches a comprehensive ethic for all of life. And as I noted last week, we're going to be looking at this passage under two main headings. The first is the duties of Christian love. Secondly, the motives of Christian love. The duties and the motives of Christian love. And so let's begin by simply reminding you what we looked at last week, which are the, these duties of Christian love. What is it that Christ calls us to do? And the first was to love those who don't deserve it. Love those who don't deserve it. And that was in verses 27 and 28. Here he gave us a, a rapid-fire list of commands that we're called to love, to do good, to bless, and to pray for those who are opposed to us. These people who are opposed to us are identified in several different ways. They're enemies for one. They're those who hate us. There's those who curse us and those who abuse us or mistreat us. Jesus calls us to love these sorts of people. This kind of love is not just an emotional, warm, fuzzy feeling that we have, but it's a decision to move towards those who do evil to us. Jesus is saying that what characterizes his followers is that in the face of personal insults and mistreatment, they will only seek to do good to those who commit such weakness, uh, wickedness. There's, there's never any retaliation. There's never any kind of returning evil for evil or get them back. Jesus, we know, was the perfect example of this. He lived this way through his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. He, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You'll remember that while he was on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 34. And so Peter says in 1 Peter 2 that in the way that Jesus lived, he left an example for us to follow. Just as Jesus did not return uh, insult for insult, so neither are we. And so we see that we have been called to suffer unjustly at the hands of enemies. Enemies will do things to us that will hurt us. And yet we have also been called not only to endure that suffering, but we're called to love and to do good and to bless and to pray for those who do such things. Truly, this is supernatural love that only God can produce in us. And so we ask, do we love in this way? Do you love in this way? Have you tried loving that person who causes you pain? Have you tried praying for them and blessing them? Have you tried asking the Holy Spirit to help you in this supernatural love? Well, that's the first duty, is to love those who don't deserve it. The second duty this text shows us is to refrain from retaliation. Refrain from retaliation in verse 29a, where he says, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And the principle here, remember that we looked at last week, is, is to not returning insult for insult, but leaving ourselves open and exposed for further reproach. The strike that's mentioned here is not just a fistfight punch to the face, but rather a backhanded slap, which was the greatest insult someone in ancient times could receive. Therefore, if one is insulted and shamed for doing what is right, we should not stop doing the right thing just because we're insulted, or in this case, slapped. We should continue to do what God has called us to do, even if it means we will receive a second round of insults. Even if we're going to get a slap on the other cheek, Jesus is saying we must continue to do the good. Because we know the natural human response is to fight back, right? Hey, what you doing, man? Why are you, why are you hitting me? But Jesus says, 
For his followers, they should not return evil for evil or insult for insult. Instead, they're continue, continuing to do what is right, and that might mean leaving themselves up to further insult. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, will we continue to do what is right when the shame and the insults come our way? Will we leave ourselves open for further reproach when we are reprimanded or insulted for doing what is right? Will we continue to speak the truth even though our coworkers hate us for it? Will we continue to miss games and practices on Sundays even if our child gets benched for it? Will we continue to be faithful to what God has called us to do even if there are consequences to that? The third duty that Jesus mentions here is to be generous to a fault. To be generous to a fault. And we see this in verses 29b and 30 through verse 30. He says, And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as with these exhortations, Jesus commands us to not be so attached to our possessions that we cannot let them go, whether they're stolen from us or whether they're asked of us. The point is that even when our enemies steal something of ours, we must be willing to let it go and even to give more. Remember, we saw the example from believers in, in Hebrews chapter 10 who, because they stood with believers who were in prison, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. They lived out what Jesus was calling for here. They're let, willing to let it go because they were standing for Christ. I'm reminded of the story in Les Mis, Les Miserables, where Jean Valjean, right, a recently uh, released convict, is given shelter in the home of a local bishop. And there in the night, he steals the silverware of the bishop and makes off in the night. And yet he is later then caught by police and he is brought back to the bishop's house to be confronted. The police there are asking the bishop if this silverware is his, to which he replies, no, I, I gave it to Valjean. And then he adds, in fact, he forgot the two silver candlesticks that I also gave him. You see, neither of those were actually given they were stolen but he chose to give in the midst of an enemy who was seeking to steal from him what began as a robbery ended in a testimony of grace because of the generosity of the bishop and i believe this is the kind of generosity that jesus is calling us to as well we live in such a consumeristic society where we're so attached to our things and we, we love to buy things and have it delivered in next day or in two days or it keeps getting quicker, right? It's going to be next hour before we, before we know it. We love our stuff. That is until we don't love it and we take it to goodwill. And, <laughs> and we flood that, right? That was the, this last year. We flooded all the donation centers. But Jesus says we need to be ready to part with our stuff. Even that stuff that might be valuable to us or might be necessary in order to love even our enemies. And the final duty that Jesus gave us here was to do good to others. Verse 31, do good to others. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. He wrapped up his list of duties with giving us the golden rule. The, the golden rule that's given in many different societies and cultures and source, ancient sources. But as we talked about, all those other sources list this rule in the negative. They came across something like this. Don't do to others what you don't want done to you. And so what results is simply a, a don't be hostile. Don't do anything that is, is hurtful. Non-aggression. But Jesus goes further and he places it in the positive. He says to do others what you wish was done to you. And we want more done to us than just not harm. There's positive things we want done to us. And so that's what Jesus is commanding us to do to others in our circle of influence. Do to others what you would wish was done to you. What would you prefer done? Well, do that to someone else. If you were in their shoes, what would you want done? Go and do that. 
And this is an overarching principle for all the many situations that Christians find themselves in, and yet it's demanding every single time. It's demanding in our marriage. It's demanding as parents. It's demanding among siblings. It's demanding in the workplace. It's demanding in our neighborhoods, wherever we are, for us to give and do good positively. What we would want done and doing that to others challenges us to new heights of generosity and giving love that we should continue to press on towards. You see, Jesus wants us to think proactively about the needs of others, even our enemies. I came across this story from Germany right after the Berlin Wall fell that I thought illustrates this well. It was 1989, and after the the Berlin Wall came down, there was no person in all of East Germany who was more despised than the former communist dictator, Erich Honecker. He had been stripped of all his offices. Even the Communist Party rejected him. He was kicked out of his villa. The new government refused him and his wife even new housing. And so the Honeckers were homeless and destitute. But enter Uwe Holmer, director of a Christian health center north of Berlin. Made aware of this family's straits, Pastor Holmer felt it would be wrong to give them a room meant for even needier people. So the pastor and his family decided to take the former dictator into their own home. Now, Eric Honecker's wife, Margot, had ruled the East German educational system for 26 years. And eight of Pastor Holmer's ten children had been turned down from higher education due to Mrs. Honecker's policies, which discriminated against Christians. But now, the Holmers were caring for their personal enemies, the most hated man in Germany. By the grace of God, the Holmers loved their enemies did them good, blessed them, and prayed for them. They turned the other cheek. They gave their enemies their coat, or in this case, their home. And they did to the Honeckers what they would have wished the Honeckers would do to them. It's, this kind of love is costly. It's difficult, and yet it's beautiful when we follow Christ in this way. So Jesus get, tells us what we are to do, but why are we to do it? Why are we to love in this way? Why are we to love enemies like this? That's where Jesus turns next with the motives of Christian love in verses 32 through 36. The motives of Christian love. And here we'll see four motives in this text. The first motive in verses 32 through 34 is favor from God. Favor from God is to be one of our motives. Look at verses 32 and through 34. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Now, in these three parallel statements, Jesus does three things. He, number one, is recapping and reviewing some examples that he already gave in the previous paragraph on loving, doing good, on giving and lending. He's also, secondly, highlighting the high standard to which Christians are called. The the world has one standard, and they act this way. Christians are called to a higher standard. But he's also, thirdly, in these verses, he's emphasizing that the believer should be motivated to do that which brings him the most benefit. Jesus wants us to see that we're called to a high standard, but in order to call us there, we're promised greater favor from God. Jesus highlights the higher standard of his disciples by comparing them to unbelievers. The unbelievers here in these verses are labeled as sinners. Now we know that until we are glorified, those who are saved are also have sin still in our lives. So even though we are Christians, we've trusted in Jesus, we can't say that we are without sin. And so therefore, there's a certain sense in which we are still sinners. We still sin. But when the sinners identified here in the context, Jesus is drawing a contrast, right, between those who are his disciples who truly follow him and those who do not. Those who follow the world, those who follow their own passions and desires. 
and here they're called sinners. His first example that he gives is love. How do believers love and how do sinners or unbelievers love? We, we know that the world naturally loves those who love them back, right? That's easy. You love me, I love you. You're saying such nice things to me. You're, you, 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 have, you, just, you just love me and you give me hugs and you like, this is easy. I can love you back because you're just so kind. You're just so nice. But this is natural. You don't need the Spirit of God to love in this way. I mean, think about it. Some of the worst men in history, Hitler or Stalin, loved in this way. They loved those who loved them back. But Jesus says that Christians need to go beyond this. Our standard is higher than that. We're to love our enemies. But Jesus promises that when we do, when we love in this way, that there is benefit or credit that comes to the believer. And he asks it in form of a question, right? What benefit is that to you? This word translated benefit here is actually the word for grace or favor. And so we need to ask, uh, wh what does it mean that what benefit or credit or favor is that to you? Where is this favor coming from? Well, this is favor from God. There's favor that we receive from God when we love the unlovable and love those who will not love us in return. In other words, the difficult task of loving our enemies is seen by our sovereign God and he is keeping score. He knows what we are doing. He is not turning a blind eye to our difficult love that he has called us to. Likewise, Jesus used the example of doing good. That's the next question. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to, to you? For even sinners do the same. Likewise, sinful man does good to those who do good to them. Again, the rule of reciprocity is, is, is everywhere. It just makes sense to us because this is how we operate. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. I'll do good to you if you do good to me. I mean, it, in one sense, it makes sense. And so what, God, what Christ is calling us to is something that doesn't make sense. Why would we do good to those who do evil to us? It doesn't make any logical sense, but that's the high standard that Jesus calls us to. We're to give and to do good without any strings attached. Jesus makes it clear that we are not motivated by what we'll get in return from the other person, but instead we're motivated by what we will get from God. We'll get favor from the Lord. In other words, I don't need to get anything from you. I can simply serve you with a selfless attitude because I'm not looking for you to fill that bucket in me. I, that bucket is, is filled by the Lord and therefore I'm set free to be able to love you in a powerful and selfless way. This is how the gospel enables us to love. We, Jesus wants us to be motivated by the favor that we'll receive from the Lord. And he, and he plays that out even in this third example, in verse 34. He goes to the example of lending. Now, in this verse, it is easy to read it in such a way that says we are being called to give out money to people that are asking for a loan and yet we are to never expect that that loan will ever be repaid. But I don't believe that that's the contrast Jesus is making here. In other words, I don't believe the contrast between sinners who expect loans to be paid back on the one hand and Christians who give out loans with no expectation of repayment on the other. The reason being is if Christians are to give out loans without repayment, then it, in what sense can you call it lending? In what sense can you call it a loan if there is never any giving or any repayment back? It's simply giving. And so I think Jesus' primary point here is that Christians should not give out loans expecting the favor to be returned to them at a future date. 
They aren't to live by the maxim, I scratch my back, you scratch mine. In other words, hey, I gave you a loan and helped you out. That means you're going to give me a loan and help me out later on when I need it too, right? That's not to be our MO. At the end of verse 34, it says, even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Now, I think this translation is somewhat unfortunate because the word amount is not in the original. It just ends with the same. So it could be translated, even sinners lend to sinners to receive the same, to get back the same. And so what this, does this look like practically? Well, let's say that you're, your brother asks to borrow some cash and you consent to give him the loan because you're a good, kind-hearted sibling. And it's natural to think, I helped him when he needed it, so he should be able to help me when I need it. But Jesus is saying here that the Christian should not give out loans expecting the favor to be returned. They give it with no strings attached. Now, you may choose to not require repayment and just give it as a gift, but I don't believe that's what Jesus is requiring here. And again, the motivating factor for why we are to live this way is that we have favor from the Lord. He says, what credit is that to you? What favor is that to you? What favor are you going to receive if you simply do this with strings attached, expecting to receive the same thing back? Jesus wants his disciples to look to the Lord to receive the pleasure. You see, the motivation for the Christian should be to please the Lord. This is what drives everything that we do. We want to bring a smile to his face. And so Jesus makes it clear that selfless love and help towards others is exactly what brings a smile to God's face. It's living in this way that pleases the Lord. This is what drove the Apostle Paul. He wrote in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He says, I'm not trying to please man. I'm trying to please God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, he said, We speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. And in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Friends, this is to be the motivating driver of Christian obedience, is that we are looking to bring pleasure to God. And yet, is it not an incredible temptation in this life to seek the approval of man? The fear of man. What are people going to think of us? How are they going to respond to me? What if they don't like me? This is a powerful fear that is within each one of our hearts and causes us to do many different things. And yet the Bible is clear that the fear of man is a snare. That this is not the path to life. In fact, the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. Proverbs 14, 27. Fearing God, thinking about what he thinks, being in an awful fear of, of his opinion is how we are to live our lives. And I believe that Jesus is motivating his disciples with here. Folks, we live as pilgrims in this life. We are just passing through. And we must have our eyes and hearts set upon the pleasure of God. We must live in the fear of God. We must want to see him pleased above all else. And when that is our controlling motive, we're able to then love those who will not love us in return. And so this text acts a, a, prompts us to ask some penetrating questions. What drives your behavior? Why do you do what you do? Is your motivation any higher than what an unbelieving natural man would be? Do you simply do something because of what you can get in return from the other person? Jesus calls us to something much higher. Or do you think about what's pleasing to the Lord? Is that a common thought each day? What is it that would please the Lord today? 
What is it that would cause me to, to gain favor from the Lord today? Are you fearing him or are you fear, fearing others? Do you care more about what he thinks or what other people think? We must be driven by a desire to please God and in that we're then able to rise above what the natural man, what we on ourself, by ourselves uh, are motivated by and to be able to, to do uh, to love in sacrificial ways. Well, that leads us then to our, the next motivation that drive our love. The second motivation, first motivation was favor from God. Second motivation is reward from God in verse 35. Reward from God. He says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. This verse, verse 35, is Jesus' summary of what he said so far, right? He, he's, given, he's kind of pulling it all together. He repeats these commands, love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And then he gives his reason. For, uh, and your reward will be great, he says. This is a reward that will come to us in the future, a reward that's coming to his followers, Verse 23, previously, it said that it's our reward in heaven. And so here's the amazing fact. Jesus wants us to be motivated by heavenly rewards. He wants you and I to think about the rewards that we will receive one day when we see the Lord face to face. And a desire to be rewarded by God for what we do is not selfish. It's not corrupting the very act itself. It's godly. We see that examples throughout Scripture. In fact, even Jesus was motivated by the joy that was set before him when he endured the cross. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Or Hebrews 11, verse 26, talks about Moses, who considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? For he was looking to the reward. Moses was looking to the reward. Jesus was looking to the reward. We, too, are to look forward to the reward now some have taught that jesus tells us there's a reward and we can know about it but we shouldn't be motivated by it we just say nope god you've got that but i'm not i i don't care about that but i i don't think that does justice to what jesus brings out here he mentions reward throughout the gospels that we are to be keep on our minds that we will be rewarded he says we're to do these things because your reward will be great. In other words, you face loss now. You face present pain because there's going to be eternal gain. You're not losing out, disciple. Even though you receive the reproach of men, you are going to receive the praise of God. John Bunyan, the great Puritan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, said this, he said, whatever good thing you do for him, if done according to the word, is laid up for you as treasure in chests and coffers to be brought out to be rewarded before both men and angels to your eternal comfort. There is reward awaiting us to be brought out for our eternal comfort. And so Jesus told his disciples that they would be rewarded even though they would experience great suffering as they loved their enemies. He wanted them to know that it would all be worth it. Again, they're not losing out. God who sees all will grant you wonderful rewards in heaven one day. Now, it's important to note that in this doctrine of rewards, we're not losing our, we're not, uh, sorry, uh, rather earning our salvation. We're not earning our salvation with us. When we talk about earning rewards, we're not, earning our position in Christ. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. Their salvation cannot be earned, okay? We didn't earn it. We could never earn it. And so these rewards are simply given to those who are already Christians, to those who are already secure in Jesus, who have placed their faith in him, received the gift of salvation, and now there is this accumulation of heavenly rewards that is placed before us. And I believe that Jesus should want us to accumulate rewards. That we should want to be storing up our treasure in heaven 
by what we do here on this earth. We don't want to accumulate everything in the here and now. We accumulate in heaven. We accumulate for the future glory because God gets all the praise for that. We don't get any praise. We don't get any accolades for those rewards. Those rewards that are there are only because God has worked in our hearts and lives to be able to produce those good deeds, to be able to earn that reward. It's all unto his praise from start to finish. Rewards is not something that we talk about very much in the Christian life or in the church. And yet, we can find it mentioned throughout the scriptures. And one of the things that we see is that not every believer is going to receive the same reward. We all get the reward of seeing Christ, of being in the presence of God, those fundamental things that are part of salvation. But there is additional rewards, and those vary depending on what we do in this life. Consider 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. In fact, let's, let's turn there with me. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. Let's start in verse uh, 6 to get our running start context here. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so to each so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is what is sometimes called the Bema seat or Bema seat judgment of, of believers. This is where we uh, do not receive the judgment and condemnation of God because we know Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. But there is this, this reality that we will stand before Christ and there will be an evaluation on, based upon how we live in this life and what we do. And so this judgment is coming, and this is where the, the giving of rewards will take place. And again, there are differing levels of reward, and there is the possibility, 2 John 8 warns, of possibly losing part of one's reward. But I want you to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 to, to see this idea of varying levels of reward. Second, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, look in verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So here we see there's an evaluation based upon how we live. And so, the point in all of this is that we should desire to accumulate rewards by doing the good things that Christ has called us to. We should desire that one day that, that we face the Lord and that he says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. We will want to receive a great reward that happens through selfless, selfless Christ-like living in this life. And so we need to ask ourselves, do we think about our reward? Do we think about how we're living in this life? Yes, we're saved and our, and our salvation is secure in Christ because of his work. As I read at the start of the service, right, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. But are we seeking to do all the good that we can to receive all the reward that we can for Christ's sake? John Calvin, the 16th century theologian, said, it is my happiness that I have served him 
who never fails to reward his servants to the full extent of his promise. God is faithful to reward, and we can trust him for it. Jesus here is talking to a beleaguered group of disciples who he's promised are going to receive suffering and scorn and persecution. And yet he says, listen, in this world, the church might look like it's receiving the scorn of the world. But in the end, the fortunes will be reversed. The church, the disciples of Christ, will receive the commendation from God. They will receive reward. And the converse is also true, that sinful humanity will be brought low under the wrath of God. So, we are to be motivated by receiving favor from God, by receiving reward from God. Thirdly, by our identification with God. Back in Luke chapter 6, our identification with God. Jesus says that we're to do all these things, verse 35, and your reward will be great, and look at it, you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Jesus says that by living in this, this supernatural way, in the standard that, that is far and above what normal humanity lives by, they will show themselves to be identified with the Most High God. They will show themselves to be followers and to be children of the Most High. And so we display the character of God when we live in this radical way. It's interesting here that here the Son of God informs us that we show that we are sons of God if we follow him and live according to his word. Jesus says, in other, in other words, if you follow me, the Son of God, then you will show yourselves to be sons of God yourselves. Now this does not mean that we get to be on the same status as the Son of God, that we get to be gods in some way. This simply means to be a son was to exhibit the characteristics of the Father, to be identified with the Father, and to show the qualities and characteristics of the Father. And so in this case, we show ourselves to have the same characteristics of God when we live in this way. We are like God when we are loving our enemies. And I think this, is, this verse teaches us one way that we can build our assurance of salvation. In other words, we can be assured of our salvation, as of our status as children of God, by how we treat others when we are unjustly treated. In other words, it's in the midst of suffering and persecution that our true colors show. And it's there that we get the assurance that we truly are children of God by what he produces in us, by enabling us to love in these supernatural ways. Jesus says that we show, we identify, we exhibit the fact that we are children of God when we live in the ways he's outlined. Why are we like God when we live in this way? Because, look what he says, for he, that is the Most High, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. This is what theologians call common grace. Common simply because it's experienced by all mankind. God is kind to everyone. In the parallel passage in Matthew, Matthew records Jesus saying that God causes the rain to fall and the sun to shine on the evil and the good, on the righteous and the unrighteous. You see, God has made this world a wonderful place. He continues it going. He enables people to continue on breathing, their hearts to beat. He's kind to all those who live upon this earth. And yet, the vast majority of mankind, in fact, mankind on his own, live without offering one word of gratitude for what he does and for his kindness. Notice how Jesus identifies sinful humanity. He calls them the ungrateful and the evil. The ungrateful and the evil. And this just fits with what the, script, the rest of the Bible tells us, right? That all mankind are sinners. They've fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, no, not one. And this unrighteousness is most fundamentally manifested in their lack of gratitude. The lack of gratitude. 
This is one of the things that should characterize those whose lives have been transformed is that their lives should be characterized by hearts of deep gratitude to God for all that he's done. A humbling gratitude. And yet mankind is ungrateful and evil. And yet does God judge them immediately for being ungrateful and evil? No. But judgment is coming. And while they have life and breath, God is showing kindness and patience to every single sinner. He is not, in this moment that they are alive and breathing on this earth, he is not treating them as their sins deserve. He's giving them time to turn in repentance. And friends, this is wonderful news for us today. For all of you who are listening, whether here or at home, God is kind and merciful to the ungrateful and the evil. Can there be any better news? Isn't this what we need to hear? Those of us who are weighed down with our guilt of our sin and, our, and our, the depth of our depravity, we recognize that we are not good, that we are not righteous, and we fear the judgment of God, which is true and is coming. And yet, he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He's kind to allow every single person to continue on living at this moment. But he has demonstrated his love and his kindness in an even more spectacular way through the giving of his son, Jesus Christ. Psalm 103 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Folks, each one of us deserve to be punished for our sins. And yet through Jesus, we can have our sins forgiven and removed from us. As far as the east is from the west, which never touch, our sins can be forgiven. And so I pray that if you do not know Jesus, if you are not following and walking with him today, that you would see the kindness of God that is revealed even in these verses. That he's kind to you today to allow you to continue to exist all these years that you've been living. You've been living under the kindness of God. But that kindness is so that you would have time that, to repent to turn from your wicked ways, to turn from your ingratitude and look to the God who created you, that you would bow in submission and humble repentance before him, confessing your sin and recognizing your need for Jesus. Go to him to be cleansed. Go to him to find forgiveness. You don't have to make yourself better before going to him. He knows you're ungrateful and evil and he's provided a way for you to be saved and to be cleansed of that sin. It's only through Jesus that you are able to find that forgiveness. You see, the Bible says that after death comes judgment. We will face the Lord. And at that point, it will be too late. You will have squandered the kindness of God at that point. But through the death, the burial, resurrection of Jesus, all sinners who come to Jesus in repentance and faith will be saved from the judgment and wrath that they deserve. So I exhort you, don't wait to be right with God. He's been kind to you up to this day. Turn to him, cry out to him for him to save you and find the joy of being a son and daughter of God. Lastly this morning, Jesus wraps it up by giving a fourth and final motivation for why we are to love this way. He simply says, be merciful as your father is merciful. The first three motivations, he puts something out in front of us to expect to look forward to. This last motivation, he reminds us of what's behind us. That in each one of our stories as followers of Christ is the mercy of God. That God has been merciful to us to save us. And therefore, because we look back and we see his mercy, it should propel us forward to be merciful to those around us. We or to do good and to imitate God in our mercy. This is what it means to be 
A follower of Christ is to imitate him, to imitate God, and to do as he did, to love what he loves, to hate what he hates, and to show mercy to those whom he shows mercy. Romans 5 verse 8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, remember that. That God displayed his love towards you and that while you were still sinners, while you were still enemies, Christ was merciful to you. And as you realize that mercy you've received, how dare we withhold any mercy or any love towards those who are undeserving? We too should be propelled out of mercy to others. Folks, this passage tells us to love in some supernatural ways. And that means we need supernatural help, right? We can't do it on our own. We need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to walk by the Spirit so that when it comes, when an opportunity comes to love someone, whether they like us or not, whether they're kind to us or not, that we love them just as God has loved us. May God equip us to love in this powerful way that we might put his character on display before a watching world all unto his glory. Amen? Let's bow together. Oh, Father, we are humbled when we see what you require of us in this text. We realize that our sinful nature lies quick at hand, that we so naturally want to be paid back for the good that we do, want to be recognized, want to be praised. And so, Father, would you help us to set our eyes to heaven, set our eyes upon you and recognize that it's from you that we receive the praise and the commendation. It's from you we receive the reward. And may you enable us to sacrifice our reputations, sacrifice our desires, that we might be agents of good and love for Christ's sake in this world. Oh, Father, may we not be so selfish as to think only of our needs, but may your spirit enable us to see the needs of others and to act according to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. May God be with you all and have a blessed week. You're dismissed.